Crazy. Man, come back for a double dose. Praise God. Thank you, Joseph, for that uh, inspiring worship. Um, that is, uh, that's a cool gift to have. I wish I had that gift. <laughs> uh, that's why we are many, but we're one body, because we have many gifts and many different things. Um, the message tonight is entitled, No Excess and No Lack. No Excess and No Lack. Um, how much is enough? How much is enough? What you're content with? How much is enough? Well, it depends, right? Depends what we're talking about, right? Um, at what point are you satisfied? What's enough? I don't know. It's different for different people and different cultures. There was a book that I saw once that a missionary had on his table. And what this um, photographer did is they went all around the world and they took all of people's possessions in their home, in various nations, third world nations, uh, industrialized nations, and they took everything they owned inside their home and they said, put it out in front of your house. We'll pay to get it transported for some. It was a lot of work. And they, and they, and they had the family stand in front of everything they owned. And the idea was to just kind of look at the differences in what people had. And so there were some folks in Africa, maybe some tribal people, and you know what? It was not a whole lot of work to get everything inside their hut out in front of it. And there's, you know, five people, big smiles, and like just a few little items. And then there was uh, a family in Saudi Arabia that they had them take everything out, and it was just a pile of stuff, right? Now, how much is enough? I don't know. Depends on what you're content with. And depends on whether or not you're satisfied with what God has given you. I don't know, you know. But the message tonight is no excess, no lack. Let me read from M.R. Vincent, who says this. No human experience is uniformly joyful or sorrowful. No human experience is uniformly joyful or sorrowful. Here's why. A great triumph is succeeded by a great obstacle and sometimes by a great defeat. But there is another equally constant fact uh, to offset this. As we look at this alternation of Elims and Maras, as we looked in our previous chapter, uh, in our life, and recognize it as a law of our human experience, we find it supplemented by something else which is equally a law. And that is, and what he's talking about is how there are the Maras in life, which are the bitterness the, the times of bitterness in our lives, and there's the elims in life, which is a time of refreshing and the time of God's provision in abundance. And, and life is full of both of those. And so what he's saying is there is something else that's an equal law that is also important, and that is that the economy of God uh, by which this alternation is happily adjusted. In other words, I mean this, that if it is a law of our life, that joy and sorrow succeed each other. It is equally a law of our life that God interposes and keeps the joy from corrupting and the sorrow from crushing us. If sorrow is a part of God's economy, healing is equally a part. And we say praise God for that. And the name of the Lord that we came across last week was Yahweh Rapheka, Jehovah Rapheka. And he says, I'm the Lord God, your healer. And that's what God does. God heals. Uh, I, was, I was reminded of, um, I was just telling someone today about, 
many of you may know the story about how my wife had had a um, a, 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 back, a back issues, and it wasn't really really bad, but it was bad enough. Uh, you know, we could be walking, and um, if we if she did too much, I could always tell when her back was starting to bother because if we're holding hands, she start to pull down on my hand. I'd be like, "Oh, there goes your back," you know. And it was a car accident; it wasn't her fault, but it was one of those things. And uh, anyway, uh, one night she was having a dream, uh, and I was talking to the Lord, and the Lord. Um, you know, she, she had had a really hard day. I mean, it was really hurting. And those of you that have back problems, I can see your faces. You're going, oh, yeah. And, and, and I was having, a, in her dream, I was having a conversation with the Lord. And the Lord, uh, uh, she said, hey, Jesus, can you heal me? And Jesus sort of looked at her and then kept talking to me. And I've always asked her, what was he telling me? She goes, I don't know. I'm like, ah. And then she says that she kind of was like, wow, I, I can't believe that he didn't even like acknowledge it. He just looked at me, but didn't do anything. And, and then she said again, hey, Jesus, do you think you can heal me? I mean, can you heal me? And he said, uh, you know, if you believe, yes, all things are possible. And she goes, I do believe this is in her dream. I do believe God, I believe you can heal me. And then so he, he like placed his hand upon her back and then he said, then be healed. And so she said in her dream, she was healed. Okay, so she wakes up that morning, and it's like, hey, I have to tell you about the dream I had last night. And I'm like, oh, cool. And Because my wife has, you know, people say, well, God doesn't speak to people in dreams, whatever. Okay, God speaks to people any way he wants to, and that includes dreams and visions, and the Bible says that. But, you know, all we need is the Word of God. Yes, we need the Word of God. And you have to be careful when someone says they have a dream about something, especially if they're single, and so are you, right? I had a dream about you. Back off, dude, all right? So, she, she, and when my wife says, I got to tell you about this dream, dude, I'm all ears. Because she's had some amazing prophetic dreams that have spoken things where I went, whoa, how'd you know that about so-and-so? So, she goes, and this dream, you know, I had this, you know, like my back, and boy, my back was, you know, really sore yesterday. And anyway, God, you know, having the conversation, with God, God healed me. I'm like, whoa. And she goes, yeah, and you know what? I just have to say, you know, my back is feeling pretty good. I'm like, whoa, okay cool. That's awesome. And, and, and she said, you know, in her dream, Lord, even if you heal it for a day, that would be cool. In her dream, she said that. So, it, you know, at that time, we have four, three kids under the age of four. We still have three kids, but they're much bigger than that. They were all under the age of four. So she put the healing to the test. And if you're a mom, you get this, the ultimate healing test for your back when you have children is to get them on the dually. So, you know, Alexis in front, Blake in back, bothering her, and Richie hanging on the side pretending he's a trash man. And she went to the mall. Oh, that's a test. If, if, the, if the Lord heals your back, go to the mall. <laughs> that's the ultimate test with three kids. And she goes to the mall. And guess what? She told me that night, she goes, you know what? She goes, wow, like my muscles are really sore. I went, what? She goes, but my back feels fine. I said, what? Yahweh Rebekah. The Lord healed her in a dream. That was not the power of positive thinking. She was sleeping. That was not some weird, supernatural, I think I can. I th no, God did that. Jesus showed up in her dream and healed. Don't tell me God doesn't heal. Don't tell me. Go tell my wife that. She'd be like, whatever. <laughs> that word's for you, not me. Because we believe that God heals. Does he always heal? No. 
but he is the Lord, our healer, even if the healing is spiritual, but not physical, which is the greater part, the physical, uh, the, the spiritual. Anyway, all right, so Yahweh, Rafeka, we're introduced to him. Now, after all the complaining, you know, three days in the wilderness, no water, they complain against God, and God provides 12 springs and 70 date palms. I think that'd be a great message title. 12 springs and 70 date palms. Or you could go 1270. And like, like everybody here would go, oh, Exodus, right? They'd be like, how'd you know that? Oh. So they go from, from praise to the blues, right? They go from ain't no sunshine while he's gone to the thrill is gone. Even so, I want you to get this, God provides for them. God provides for them. They complain, God provides. And now that's just God. That's just a loving father who doesn't say, after all I've done for you, you complain. Are you kidding me? I'll show you what you get. You get nothing. No, water. And here's some dates to go along with it. Oh, because he is the Lord who heals. He's also Yahweh Jireh, the Lord who provides. All right. They're going to need provision because there's upwards of 2 million of them, take the entire population of Las Vegas, wandering in the wilderness, and they do not have enough to get by. You can't possibly do that. All right? And so um, it's time to move on, though. I mean, you cannot stay at, the, uh, the, uh, at Elim where the springs and the date palms are forever, especially if you have a destination. It is great to be at the place of God's provision in abundance. But there are times you have to leave that place. And that's a hard thing. That's a hard thing. See, we, uh, how many of you like to be at Elim? I do. I love Elim. Because we went through Mara, then we came to Elim, and we were like totally like, yes, this is it. And then God says, time to go. We're like, no, Lord, no, no, we like it right here. But this isn't the place I have for you. See, if you stay here, you'll become complacent. You, you, you'll forget about me. Oh, no, we need to move on. We're like, no, Lord, I don't want to move on. I want to stay right here at Elim. And he says, come on, we got to go. And it's like, okay, everybody, pack up your bags. What? Yeah, pack up your bags. We got to go. All right, time to move on. Have you, and we touched on this last week, have you ever blamed God for your failures? Maybe even you blame God for something that was your fault, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, sometimes we experience the exact opposite of what we think God's going to do, right? I don't know if that's ever happened in your life. I am sure that God's going to do this. And you know what he does? He does that. And I go, wait a minute, Lord, that wasn't one of the possibilities. <laughs> no, I wasn't thinking that. Uh, sometimes God does the exact opposite of what we think he would do, right? And sometimes because of that, what do we do? We gripe and we complain and then we blame. Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 7, write it down. Jeremiah is having a bad day, okay? And this is what he says to God, you have deceived me and I was deceived. Jeremiah the prophet, no, Yes. He's having a tough time. He preached the word of God, then he was beaten and thrown in jail. And he's like, Lord, you, you set me up. You deceived me. What? Jeremiah the prophet? Yeah, you know what he's being? He's being real. Doesn't mean he doesn't believe in God. Doesn't mean he's done with God. 
he just says, God, this is a tough time. And he speaks from his heart. And here's the thing. It's very natural for the world, those who are not followers of Jesus, to blame God. It's very natural for those who aren't a part of the church to blame God. And you hear it this way. If there is a God in heaven, then why? Fill in the blank. You hear that all the time. How could he allow? It's a reasonable question. But what about when the church asks that question? Okay, here's why we do it. Write this down if you'd like to take notes. Wrong expectations. Wrong expectations. One writer put it this way. The more I know about God, the more I find out I don't know. Think about this. Would you be content worshiping a God where you always knew what his next move was going to be? That's man-made. If I'm going to make up a God, I'm going to make up a God that appeases my appetites and I always know what the next move is. There's no mystery in that because I've created this God, right? Wrong expectations. I expect something to happen. Something else happens. Why? Because we can't program God. You can't program God. You can't say, this is the way God heals every time. And guess what? He doesn't. You can't say, you know, God will always do this when you do that. Now, there are some tendencies. In, there are things about the character of God. If I surrender, if I confess the Lord Jesus Christ uh, 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 with my mouth, if I believe in my heart that God raised him from the, I will be saved. Okay, no, God will always do that. He will always do that. But when it comes to my expectations, I try to program God, and I can't program God because that's what religion does. It puts God in a box and says, this is what God will always do. And yet God constantly says, listen, you can't pin me down. And yet I'm trying constantly to pin God down. And mostly when I want to pin him down, it's for something I want. But I have the wrong expectations. Here's the thing. God will be God. And there are things about the the works of God and the things that God does that we'll never understand or have an explanation for. And we have to be okay with that. That's why he's God and we're not. That's why it takes faith when your expectations are dashed. Lord, I thought for sure by now, fill in the blank. God, you said you would fill in the blank and it hasn't happened yet. The secret things God keeps to himself. Everything else are for our sons and daughters. And that's the way it has to be. How serious would we worship a God that we always knew what was next and we always knew what he was going to do? Sometimes God, you know what? We're making a left. God says go right. And we go, what? Where'd that come from? God has his ways. We have to trust in that. And here's the other thing why... We blame God sometimes, wrong expectations. Sometimes it's because we're too involved in the results. We're too involved in the results. Lord, that's the one that I want to marry. Yeah, but it's not the one I want you to marry. Oh, no, God. No, no, that's the one. And God's saying, no, she's not. Yes, she, no. 
we're too involved in the results. Lord, let your will be done. The things in life that we go like this, okay, God, this is the end result. God says, no, it's not. We're like, yes, it is. He's like, no, it's not. We're like, yes, it is. And he loves us too much to let us do this. So he sometimes has to pry our fingers open. <laughs> and we say, okay, God, let your will, whatever you want, God. Whatever, however you want to do this, God. Okay, God, okay, I surrender to you, God, whatever it is. The results are in his hand, not mine. The results are in his hand, not mine. Oh, you've heard it. I have a good friend that, 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 oh, I don't know, six years, lockdown, six years. He's in an honor camp right now. Last year, he was praising the Lord. He was getting out. I know it. God's already spoken. God's not man. God, God doesn't lie. I know I'm getting out. Praise the Lord. And I was like, ah, okay, brother. Trying to agree with you. Trying to have faith with you. You know, yeah, man, I just, I know it, man. I feel it in my spirit. God's revealed it. I'm like, well, praise God. But here's the thing. It may not happen. And it didn't happen. You got to dump. No, you're not going home. And it was incredibly disappointing. He was involved in the results too much. Nothing wrong with that. Who wouldn't be? But it wasn't God's time. It wasn't God's time. See? Ha! Ha! It's so hard to do. It's so hard when it's personal. It's so hard to do. So the children of Israel, we're back to them. They're, on, they're, they're, um, uh, they're in the wilderness of sin. How about that, right? The wilderness of sin. Now, don't take it literally. That's not what it means. It's actually the wilderness of zin, but some translations say sin. But it doesn't mean it's this place of great immorality like Sodom and Gomorrah was or Las Vegas could be, depending on what side of you know your own, but um, uh, they're in the wilderness of sin. It's a hostile place. It's a place of, it's a desert. We get it. Don't have to go any further than that, right? So verse 1 through 3 of chapter 16. All right, now where'd they come from? Elim. How many springs were there? Twelve springs. How many date, tree, date palms? Seventy. Woo! Okay. Are you, cool at, are you cool with Elim? You like Elim? That's a place to go. People want a vacation in Elim, right? But guess what? They're on the move. They, came, they set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. Okay? Um, well, we thought that our testing was over, right? We didn't do too good last time, Lord. And the Lord's like, yeah, I know that. And uh, we got another test coming. See, they left a place of testing. They didn't do too good. And so sometimes the Lord has to, like, you know, in school, when you don't make the grade, you have to what? You have to repeat that grade. Well, you should, but, you know, you, sh you should repeat it. And that's what the children of Israel are having to do. They're having to repeat this test again. It's been one month since they've left Egypt. One month. Okay? Not that long. They've been at Elim, but not that long. They're at a, they're, they're, they've gone from uh, Elim, an oasis. They're going to Sinai, a meeting place with God, and they're in the wilderness of sin. Now, watch this. Okay, verse 2. And the whole congregation of the sons of Israel, what does your Bible say? Murmured, grumbled. 
grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Okay, it's been a month since they've been out of Egypt. They've already failed this test once, but God's wanting to bring something out of their hearts. Okay, because, you know, apparently they thought that the trip, trek through the wilderness was going to be very easy, it's going, but it's very difficult. And, and they forgot about it. They thought it was just going to be all Elim, but it's not. There's some wildernesses of sin in there, too, and there's a reason for that. All right, and so... Uh, Sons of Israel said, to the, uh, grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the sons of Israel said to them, would that we have died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the pots of meat, we ate bread to the full. And for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Okay. You get the point, right? These kids are never satisfied. And now they're blaming Moses and Aaron for bringing them out in the wilderness to kill them. That's why you brought, you want to kill us all, right? Whoo! Now, who are they grumbling against? Really, ultimately, God. But they're using Moses and Aaron as the focal point of that complaining. Now, this is, this is heavy right here. I err when I assume the motives of someone else and respond accordingly to what I think those motives are. Because they may not be what I think they are. Let me say that again. I err when I assume the motives of someone else and respond accordingly to what I think those motives are, but they may not be what I think they are. How many times have, have, have an argument, a, you know, you, you, immediately assume that someone is doing something or saying something because of some agenda, because some hatred, because something in their heart towards you, and you assume that you know what the reason is, so you respond accordingly, and that's not even the reason why. Someone says something, don't mean anything by it, and you get all fired. Oh, I can't believe it. What's wrong? And it's like, what are you talking about? Man, I didn't even mean that. Right? Any married people in the house? A couple. Okay? You get it. They are assuming that Aaron and Moses brought them out of Egypt with the agenda of killing them. (laughs) You've already been to the seaport village of Elim. If they wanted wanted to kill you, they could have killed you at the Red Sea. I mean, like, right? They want to kill us. Like, why would they even want to do that? Why would they go through all of that drama in Egypt? Why would they take you out of Egypt to kill you? They could have killed you in Egypt. Ultimately, who are they complaining against? God has brought us out here to kill us. Now, how do you feel about these people? Well, be careful what you say. They're human. Just like me. Just like me. Man. Verse 4 through 10. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. Okay? Moses is like, wait, 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 wait. Okay. Uh, Could you, hold on, hold on. Aaron, write this down. Okay, back that up, Lord. You're going to, let me see if I get this right, you're going to rain down bread from heaven. 
Okay, Aaron, you heard that, right? That's what God said. He's going to rain. Like, it's never rained bread from heaven before, but it's going to rain. Like, is this going to be like hurricane rain? I mean, is, this, is it going to be like rye bread or is it going to be like, you know, croutons? And is it going to hurt when it hits us? It's literally going to rain bread. I mean, I don't know. That's what I'd be thinking. What did the Lord say? The Lord said he was going to rain down bread from heaven. Okay. <laughs> you know what, Moses? Uh, you've lost your mind. Uh, and, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether or not they walk in my statutes. Okay, verse 5. And will come about on the sixth day they prepare uh, what they bring in. It will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, At evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your grumbling against the Lord. What are we that, we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, this will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the, uh, in the evening and bread to the full in the morning, for the Lord hears your grumbling, which you grumble against him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. Moses and Aaron, Moses said to Aaron, say to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumblings. And it came about as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation, the sons of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Only one day's portion of bread was to be gathered. Okay, first of all, let's get let's just let's just get let's just get it in our minds that it's gonna rain down bread from heaven. I mean, come on. It's gonna rain down bread from heaven. It's okay. I don't know how that's going to happen, but it's going to rain down. Okay, we got that. And then only get one day, because why? What are we going to do? If we're wandering in the wilderness and it rains down bread from heaven, what are we going to do? We're going to stockpile that stuff. We're going to store it all up. We're going to get as much of that as we can, just in case it doesn't come tomorrow. Ah, because we're still not trusting God yet, are we? That speaks of faith and contentment. How much is enough? You're out in the wilderness. There's bread all over the place. You're like, this is crazy. Hey, this is good bread. This is like no other bread. This is better than Jamaican bread. This is better than any kind of bread you've ever had. And you better get some more. I know, huh? May not be here tomorrow. I don't know. And on the sixth day, gather double. Why? So they could rest on the seventh day. That was a step of faith. Okay, on the sixth day, gather twice. On the seventh day, don't worry. Okay, it was a test. Now listen, every work of God, typically, not always because God can do whatever he wants, typically there's your part and there's God's part, right? God would send the angel of death into Egypt to kill the firstborn son. It was Israel's part to apply the blood, right? God would split the Red Sea. It was Israel's part to walk through with a wall of water on the side and on dry ground. Uh, God would provide a lamb. Abraham's part was to set up an altar and to raise his knife as if to sacrifice his son Isaac. God provided manna. It was Israel's job to go and get it. Why? Many reasons, one of which is a simple thing called participation. See, 
the Lord wants to use us to participate with him in what he's doing. He wants to do something great, and he chooses so often to work through people so that we will glorify and honor him because he does not need us to do it, but he chooses to use us so that we can be a part of his great plan. It's like, Lord, you don't need anybody to do what you're going to do, but you choose to use me. Make me a willing servant. Make me a humble servant because all the glory is yours. It's okay to honor man. It's okay to honor women for the work that they do. It's okay to do that. It doesn't mean like we're idolizing them and lifting them up. No, it means, hey, man, we honor you for your work. We honor you, sister, for your commitment, but all glory goes to the Lord. Woo, look at verse 11 through 18. It's about to rain. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, I've heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel speak to them saying, at twilight you shall eat meat and in the morning you shall be filled with bread and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Didn't they already know that? Didn't they remember what happened in Egypt? Didn't they already know that God was a miracle worker? Remember the dates just a few days ago? Remember, remember the, the, uh, the sweet water of Eileen? Ain't no water like that. Nowhere. Eileen, you, you can try to bottle it and sell it, but man, this is the best water anywhere in the world. And they still don't know. You know what? Yesterday's miracle will not sustain faith today. Yesterday's miracle will not sustain faith today. Oh, man, 30 years ago, God was moving in my life. I want to hear your testimony, but tell me what he's doing now. What about today? Woo! All right, verse 13. So it came about at evening that the quails came up and covered the camp. Wait a minute. How many people are in the wilderness? Maybe two million. They got quail. How much quail? A lot. Dad, you need to come outside right now. What's up? We got quail. What? Oh, yeah. It's a whole lot of quail. There's quail from all over the place. Woo. Wow. Okay. It said it covered the camp. And in the morning, there came a layer of dew around the camp. And then when the layer of dew evaporated, behold, the surface of the wilderness, there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. The sons of Israel saw it. They said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is bread which the Lord has given you to eat. And that's what manna means. What is it? This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, every man as much as he should eat. You shall take an omer, about two quarts, depending on translation and, and exactly. We don't know exactly, but let's, let's say two quarts apiece, according to the number of persons in each, each of you has in his tent. The sons of Israel did so, and some gathered much and some little, and they measured it with an omer. He who had gathered much had no excess, and he who, uh, and he who had gathered little had no lack. For every man gathered as much as he sh should eat. In other words, everyone, every man gathered what? Enough. 
There's up to two million people in the wilderness, and there's quail for everybody, and there's manna, fine, flake-like bread, if you would. Hey, listen. There may have been as many as 1.2 million quail. There's two million people. And Omer, if it's two quarts to feed upwards of two million people, would be about 160 boxcars a day, railway boxcars a day to feed two million people. If you've ever been at a long train, that's a long train, okay? And not only that, in order to cook the quail, you need what? You can't eat it raw. You need fire. You're in the wilderness. Where do you get firewood from? Here's how much someone calculated they would need. They would need 4,000 tons of firewood a day to cook and to keep warm. How many gallons of water would they need? One, one guy put it to pen and paper and said about a million gallons of water a day. They're in the wilderness. There is no water unless God provides it from someplace. They're going to need a million gallons a day. This manna, they're going to eat for the next 40 years. And you thought them leftovers you had last night was, uh, you know, was a problem. I heard a young kid say, I don't eat leftovers. I said, that's cool. You don't starve. <laughs> Ain't no problem. It'll be waiting for you tomorrow. It's going to be double leftovers. <laughs> Woo. Hey, our walk of sanctification. Uh, our walk of sanctification. You know what it needs? It needs participation. It needs us joining in with what God wants to do. You know what else it needs? Replenishment every day. They had to go out every day to the wilderness, and they had to pick up the manna, and they had to prepare it and eat it every day. You know what? We need to gather manna daily as well, uh, or else our spiritual lives might spoil. How do we gather manna, spiritual manna? How do we do that? Staying in the Word, staying in the Word. How else? Staying in prayer. How else? Staying in fellowship with other believers, uh, uh, asking God to give us a desire, uh, to, to connect with him, uh, to, to, to get with God every day somehow, to get in God's word every day somehow, even if it's a little bit, manna, every day, to make Christ the center, not the outside, or not one of many things that are important in our life. And it's hard because the world constantly pulls us in the other direction. Here's another thing. Manna is a type of Christ, a type of or a shadow of Christ. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Christ is our daily bread who satisfies our eternal spiritual need. Check this out. Luke, John, where is John at? Here he is. John chapter 6. Um. Let's see. Okay, here we go. And John chapter 6 and verse um, 29, Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. They said, Therefore, to him, What then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Verse 31, referencing back to Exodus, he says, 
You know, the Bible is not 66 books. It's one book. Jesus says, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus, therefore, said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not uh, it is not Moses who has given you bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And they said, therefore, to him, Lord, forevermore, give us this bread. Because they're thinking, oh, it's going to rain down manna again. Give us this bread that we may never hunger again. But Jesus is not speaking of physical hunger. He's speaking of spiritual hunger. And that's why there's only one who can satisfy the soul. And it's the most basic element of all things. Look at what Jesus says. Because we all have hunger. We all have thirst. And we all need to spiritual fulfillment must come somewhere. And Jesus is saying, I'm about to tell you where true spiritual fulfillment comes from. If you didn't get the clue... This is the work of God to believe in him whom he has sent. Moses didn't give the bread out of heaven, but it was my father. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. That's a clue. Verse 34, they said, therefore, Lord, forevermore, give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Now, is he talking about physical Hunger? Is he talking about physical thirst? No, it's spiritual. And in one failed swoop, Jesus is saying that he is the only one who can satisfy the deepest core needs that we have. And he uses the analogy of bread and water. Because if you've got bread and you've got water, you'll survive. But Jesus is saying there's a spiritual bread that comes down from heaven just like in Exodus. And they had to take that bread and partake of that. And when they did, they survived 40 years. Jesus is saying there's a better bread that's come. It is the bread that God has sent down from heaven. He says, I am that bread of life. And if you come and if you partake of me, you won't hunger And if you believe in me, you'll not thirst. Why? Because in bread, in every human being, is a spiritual hunger that can only be satisfied by feeding on Christ. There is a thirst that only can be satisfied by Jesus Christ. Christ calls himself the bread of life. Bread is important in worship. The Jewish worship experience, Pentecost, Two uh, loaves of leaven were offered as a sacrifice. In the tabernacle or the temple, there were 12 loaves of unleavened bread, bread without yeast, each week that were placed in there as a symbol of God's presence with the 12 tribes. Chapter 6, verse 31, Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, we gave them bread out of heaven to eat. During, uh, interestingly, this teaching that Jesus is speaking is during the Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Remember, before the Israelites left Egypt, they, had, they, they, they ate unleavened bread, and it was a picture of the, the, the quickness that they needed to get out of Egypt. They needed to get out of there, so there's no time for the bread to rise. Remember that leaven is also a symbol of, a, of the old life being left behind and entering into a new way. So Christ, in this context, has just fed 5,000 people, and he's saying that he was God's provision 
for the people's deepest spiritual need. He just fed 5,000 people to satisfaction. Then he says, I'm the bread of life, not that bread that I just gave you. Because that bread, if you partake of that, you'll be hungry again. And if you're a teenager, you'll be hungry even sooner than that. Woo! Just as God provided for his people when they came out of Egypt, Christ would provide that all men may come to him. Those who ate manna in the wilderness died. Eat of Christ and you live forever. The manna had to be gathered, so you must gather or ask Christ into your life. Back to Exodus. That gives us a whole new meaning of this manna from heaven. Verse 17 and 18. It says this, and the sons of Israel did so. Some gathered much, and some gathered little. Verse 18, when they measured it with an omer, he who had gathered much had no excess, and he who had gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. Now Moses says this in verse 19, let no man leave any of it until the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. And some left part of it until the morning, and it bred worms and became foul. Don't try to keep it to the next day. It's not going to work. You've got to eat what you need for today, be satisfied, and don't, and don't, you know, and then they did it, right? Okay. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread. Uh, so that they would observe the Sabbath. Verse 24 says, So they put it aside until morning, as Moses had ordered, and it did not become foul. Interesting. So the other day they tried to gather extra, it became foul, couldn't eat it. Now, when they followed God's prescription, and they saved it up for the next day, because it was the Sabbath, it was just as fresh as the day before. Ah, it tells us that it's important to follow God's instructions. Right? Six days you'll gather it. The Sabbath day will be none. Now look at verse 27. It says, And it came about on the seventh day. The seventh day was the Sabbath. They were to rest. But it says it came about on the seventh day that some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Can you believe it? It's like, man, we have plenty of food here. But it's the seventh day. We're going to look for a little extra. And they went out looking for it. And guess what? There's none there. Ah, People, right? Uh, anyway, so some of them, uh, so the people, on verse 30, so the people rested on the seventh day. There's a little bit more information about what it looked like. Coriander seed, white, and its taste was like, verse 31, was like wafers with honey. So it had a little sweetness to it, you know. Did nobody get any cavities either? You know that. You know, I mean, just what was it like? Uh, oh, we don't know. Now watch this in verse 33. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omerful of manna in it and place it before the Lord. And he kept it throughout the generations. And the Lord commanded Moses to, and, and so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. Verse 35, finishing up. And the sons of Israel ate the manna 40 years. Everybody say 40 years. Until they came into an inhabited land, they ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now, an omer is a tenth of an ephah. And so here's the thing. When I see lack, God sees sufficiency. When I see 
an obstacle, God sees a grand canyon of opportunity. Uh, when I see five loaves and two fish, God sees enough food for 5,000 people plus leftovers. Okay? The ten spies saw giants. They saw themselves as grasshoppers. Joshua and Caleb saw a good land. Instead of seeing giants, they said in Numbers 14.9, they're bread for us. That's how easy it'll be. Elisha's, uh, Elisha's servant saw an Syrian army. Uh, Elisha saw a mountain full of horses and chariots of fire. God's plan, I believe, is to transition our thinking and our vision to see, listen, God's provision is always enough. Can you say amen? You may not believe it. We're working on it. We're trying. God's provision is more than enough. If we can only see things with his eyes and not with the eyes of human resources. Let me tell you how important this manna was as a symbol. Ark of the Covenant, right? Uh, the tabernacle was that tent. That We'll get to that next. They built this tent, and, in, and it was, a, it was a, a picture of heaven. And in the center of this tent was this Ark of the Covenant. It, it, it symbolized the very throne of God. Uh, and, 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 and this was the most holy place on earth. There was a cloud, a cloud that represented the, the glory of God that wherever the ark went, the cloud was above it. Oh, this is amazing stuff. Okay, now, there were three things inside the ark of the covenant. Three things. And, and it lasted even to the time of David and the time of Solomon. Those three things were still in there. Here's what they were. Number one, Aaron's rod that budded. Remember, they cha- well, they will. They'll challenge the authority of Aaron's priesthood. The Lord says, put this put the staff down, tell them to put their staff down, and the one that buds is the true priesthood. Well, that rod was in the Ark of the Covenant. It symbolized the resurrection, the resurrected Jesus. And then the Ten Commandments were in the Ark of the... Do you see why the Ark of the Covenant would be the greatest archaeological find of all time? Maybe that or Noah's Ark, okay? Oh, the Ten Commandments symbolized the sufficiency of Christ because only Christ uh, never violated any of the Ten Commandments in word or deed or thought. So you have Aaron's rod, which speaks of Christ's resurrection, which also speaks of his priesthood. You have the Ten Commandments, which speaks of the sufficiency of Christ in that he's the only one that ever fulfilled it. You know what the third thing was in the Ark of the Covenant? A jar of manna. And that speaks of spiritual provision. I think that's pretty cool. And it's interesting that on that box, on the little lid, was what's called the mercy seat. And once a year, the high priest would go into that most holy place. He's the only one who could go in there, except when they were transporting it, when the, when the Levites would transport it. And he would sprinkle the blood of a goat or a lamb on the mercy seat. And it was a symbol of a forgiveness of sins. But inside there was Aaron's rod, the Ten Commandments, and the manna, which was symbolic of Christ's provision. Interesting things. 
Christ alone meets all the demands of God. And let me tell you what. Let me tell you. Let me just. Let me. You're here. You might as well hear it. And I need to hear it for myself. God's provision is always enough. Spiritually, the core of what we need, because he's designed us, he's created us. You are not an accident, some blip on the evolutionary radar scheme. He has designed us with a God-shaped void gentlemen that no woman can fill. The best woman in the world makes a poor God. Ladies, no man can fill that. The best man in the world makes a poor God because they're human. He has put this void in our hearts, and then he's put like a, a, a honing device that will cause us to hone into him. And when we do, when we, when we get to a place in our life, he knows where that time is. We may not know when it is. We get to a place where we're ready to hear it and we're ready to receive it. And we say, yes, Lord, you know what? No, 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 you know what? I've searched my whole life and I've tried this and I've tried that and nothing has brought me true satisfaction and the Rolling Stones got it right. Can't find no satisfaction. They had it right. They try and they still try and they still ain't got it. Well, that's not just a cry of a generation. It's a cry of a heart that's hungry and thirsty. So the Lord says, keep on trying to fill yourself with things that will cause you to hunger again. Keep on trying to satisfy your thirst with things that will just make you thirsty all over again. Or take of me and you'll never hunger again. Drink of me you'll never thirst again. And while you're at it, do it every day. Do it every day. Amen? Do you believe it? Do you agree? I do. I think that's truth because it's God's word. I believe it. Now may I walk it. (laughs) May we walk out of here and believe it. And may that change our life somehow. Somehow may it change our life. May it change our life somehow. Somehow, today, tomorrow, the next day, because that's what God's word wants to do. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word, <laughs> your word says that it, it, it will establish what it's designed to do. It will, it will accomplish its purpose. Your word has done that tonight. Lord, these are amazing stories, and they're so applicable to our lives today. Lord, be the strength of my life. Lord, you're the provider of all things. Exaltation doesn't come from the east or the west or the south, but from you. You are the only substance that can satisfy a hungry soul. You are the only true soul food because you satisfy the core of who we are. Lord, we thank you for your word. May it challenge us to be content wherever you have us, may we say, Lord Jesus, you are enough. You are enough, Lord. If I, if I but partake of you, I will have enough. Help us to live it, God. Can't do it without you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. Amen.